Aloha Kako. Welcome to the Aloha Friday Conversation. I'm Noe Tanigawa with a look at art, culture, and ideas across Hawaii. Today, we're starting with ideas about police reform and defunding the police. I mean, what could that mean for Hawaii? Loretta Sheehan was appointed to the Honolulu Police Commission in 2016. An attorney, former federal prosecutor, she was on the commission through much of Chief Louis Kealoha's federal corruption case. In light of national events, I asked her whether she had any concerns about the HPD's record when it came to civil or human rights. My sense of it was that we were doing better than other jurisdictions on the mainland and that we didn't have the same problems that they were experiencing on the mainland. My general sense was always that we are a very diverse community and that in particular the Honolulu Police Department was a very diverse department. So I felt that our track record was probably pretty good. At the same time, I had to recognize that I actually had no idea because the data is all secret and it's destroyed after four years. I mean, disciplinary proceedings are held in secret and the results are secret with the exception of a redacted report to the legislature made once a year. But frankly, there's a whole lot that the public and the police commission don't ever find out. Is that a problem? Yeah, it is. <laughs> the, the police department's works for us. We pay for everything. We pay for their salaries. We pay for the cars. We pay for the building. We pay for their retirement. We pay for their sick leave. We pay for it all. And they are public servants. And so the response I had always heard from Shoko is that it's just not fair. It would be a media circus if we started revealing disciplinary actions taken against police officers. Police officers have to make split-second decisions, and it's just not fair to judge them in the way you, you would judge other uh, public employees. I understand that. I hear that. It may be a fair argument, but you have to balance the public's right to know against the the union's desire to keep everything undercover because not all disciplinary actions are police shootings made in the heat of the moment. There's actually other issues like sexual harassment or rudeness or refusal to give your badge. There's other kinds of violations. So it's a balancing act. But at this point, the public is pretty much in the dark. Yeah. I mean, with other public workers, um, you know, school bus drivers, janitors, uh, suspensions and terminations are public record. So, I mean, do you buy the argument that it really is a special case in the police department? Not really. I don't. I, it's nothing against Shopo. They're a very good union. They do right by their union members. They fight hard for every advantage they can get for their union members. It's just a question of whether people are willing to stand up and say, no, we really shouldn't have that information. Your legal experience gave you a, a deeper perspective into the Honolulu Police Department, but how did it change once you became a commissioner? As a prosecutor and then as a civil attorney, I essentially saw how police worked, how they investigated, and the fruits of their labor. What was a new experience for me as a commissioner was observing the police community up close and how they interacted and what the culture was at the Honolulu Police Department. I never really understood the culture before. Could you describe it? Well, it has changed uh, over the years. I mean, when I first came in and Chief Kealoha was the chief, I didn't certainly didn't speak with every officer. However, the ones I did speak with were extremely unhappy. It felt like a very fractured department to me. Then after Sue Ballard came in, I think there was a huge boost in morale. I think that it became far less fractured. For better or for worse, it's very much a family at the Honolulu Police Department. You see the best when, for example, our officers were killed at Hibiscus Lane, and they really rallied together and supported uh, one another, and that was very beautiful to see. They're a family. They're very tight, <laughs> and that has a shadow side. What do you think average people don't know about the police department? It really should. I mean, because that's part of what this uh, yeah. Black Lives Matter movement is about. You know, I don't mean to sound like a Pollyanna or a cheerleader. I really don't. But I think most people need to know that 
at least for the Honolulu Police Department, my experience was that these officers, they're really good people and they really work hard and they really care about the community. I can't speak for other jurisdictions, but you know, we're all crammed together on this little mountaintop poking out of the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> and, and it feels like the officers of the Honolulu Police Department are acutely aware of that. This is their home and they care very much about their home. Other hand, you know, they can get a little bit stuck in their ways, but uh, by and large, they're progressive, forward-thinking, enthusiastic, and hardworking people. I know that sounds really Pollyannish. I know that sounds like I'm a cheerleader, but it, I, it, it happens to be true. Well, I mean, if you could, okay, look, defund the police. What could it mean to us? Does it mean anything? I think, it's, I think it's a super interesting idea. And I get that the police are probably not going to like it because it interferes with all the power and authority that they have right now. Because in their mind, it's working pretty good. So don't mess with it. But defunding the police is one of the proposals made as a part of the hashtag 8 Can't Wait project run by Campaign Zero, which it, it, they have a fascinating set of ideas. And the defunding the police is, is one of the most interesting. It challenges the historic view that social order can be maintained only by criminalizing and punishing behavior. That uses the police and the prosecutors as the enforcers. And the defunding the police movement turns that on its head and says, no, 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 no. Let's all recognize that the police don't necessarily have the expertise to handle all of our social ills. And so to give you an example of how it could work here, let's say there's a domestic violence call that comes into 911 and it's received by the dispatch center. Right now, that call goes to the Honolulu Police Department and solely to the Honolulu Police Department. The shift would be is that now if a call comes into the dispatch center of a domestic violence incident, the dispatch center would then distribute that call to two different agencies. One, to the Honolulu Police Department, because domestic violence is, in fact, a crime, but also to a community-based provider who would also respond on scene and who would provide to the victim the support services that are required, whether it's shelter services, whether it's creating a safety plan, whether it's explaining a 24-hour stay-away order whether it's helping her or him obtain a, a temporary restraining order, all of the things that go into successfully stopping criminal behavior, preventing recidivism, it's those two agencies together. And quite frankly, the community-based provider then acts as a check on the power and authority of the police department. The community provider is there to see if a police officer is saying, you know, lady, if you turn him in, you're going to hurt your kids or, you know, he's going to lose his job. And I've heard stories of things like that happening and that would prevent that. So it turns the power structure on its head. Now, the police don't like it because it takes away some of their power and authority and certainly would affect their budget. And they also point out quite correctly that, sure, you can take away the money, but historically, everyone's been very bad about taking that money and then adequately funding community-based providers or the Department of Health or the Department of Addiction Services. And that's true. That's a fair comment. We tend to cut budgets and then we don't fund mental health and we don't fund addiction services and we don't fund other, you know, social, social-based programs. So it's a two-part equation and both sides have to be met, but it's a fascinating idea and it's one that's worthy of conversation. But yeah, it, it's a question of mandating, not just sort of encouraging the police to work with other agencies, but mandating like, this is how it's going to be. This is what we're going to do. Hmm, that was Loretta Sheehan, former chair of the Honolulu Police Commission. She stepped down last month after serving since 2016, and we'll hear more from this conversation with Loretta Sheehan in just a few minutes. Right now, it's time to take a look at COVID-19 headlines around the world. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Friday, the 19th of June. Hello, I'm Oliver Conway. The WHO warns against lifting lockdowns too soon after the highest number of new cases in a single day. Scientists find that the virus was present in Italy much earlier than first thought. And kissing scenes return to French film sets. The World Health Organization says the pandemic is accelerating, with more than 150,000 cases recorded in a single day, the highest so far. The head of the WHO, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, says the world has entered a dangerous phase and warned against relaxing lockdown rules too soon. The virus is still spreading fast. It is still deadly and most people are still 
susceptible. We call on all countries and all people to exercise extreme vigilance. Continue maintaining your distance from others. Stay home if you feel sick. The coronavirus was already present in Italy in December, two months before the first official case, according to a study of sewage in northern Italian cities. From Rome, Mark Lowen reports. Italy was where the coronavirus outbreak erupted in Europe in late February, with the first recorded case in the northern region of Lombardy. But it was long thought that the virus had been circulating here earlier. Now that suspicion has been stood up by Italy's National Health Institute, whose researchers found traces of it in wastewater in the cities of Milan and Turin in December and in Bologna a month later. This study could help identify the source of the infection and shows the importance of wastewater to tracking the path of the virus. The authorities in southern India have imposed a new 12-day lockdown in the city of Chennai and three neighbouring districts after a spike in infections. Only essential services and neighbourhood grocery shops will be allowed to open. Turkey is imposing a partial curfew tomorrow and the following Saturday as up to four million students prepare to take high school and university entrance exams. Essential shops and some businesses will remain open, but the authorities hope to stop large crowds gathering on the streets. The governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, is considering a ban on visitors from Florida, where the virus is now spreading quickly. New York was by far the worst affected state in America, but infections are now well down. At his news conference, Mr Cuomo criticised the Trump administration for its handling of the pandemic. The federal government's attitude is an undeniable mistake when it has come to dealing with COVID. Their guidance... Their doctrine is an undeniable mistake. It is a political theory, a public relations theory versus a science-based, fact-based theory. European Union leaders have failed to agree a multi-billion dollar recovery fund for the country's worst hit by the virus. Two-thirds of the money would be given as grants, the rest as loans. But four member states, Sweden, Denmark, Austria and the Netherlands, insist any money handed out must eventually be repaid. Nearly 7,500 people have now died of COVID-19 in Peru. And as elsewhere, it is the poor who are suffering most. Some have resorted to drastic measures. Simon Tegel, a reporter with the Washington Post, spoke to a 48-year-old mother in Lima. She resorted to looking on Facebook to find oxygen for her son. She found one informal vendor who was charging $1,300 for a tank that would last her son a bit less than 24 hours. And she didn't have the money, but friends and relatives, they all banded together to give her the money. More than 40 tonnes of emergency medical supplies have been flown into Yemen to help the war-ravaged country tackle its growing coronavirus outbreak. The deliveries to both Sana and Aden included a million masks, hundreds of ventilators and thousands of coronavirus test kits. A study of 260 hospitals here in the UK has found that South Asian people are 20% more likely to die from the virus after being hospitalised. James Gallagher has the details. Other minority ethnic groups did not have a higher death rate. South Asian patients were, on average, a massive 12 years younger than white patients. They also had significantly higher levels of diabetes, which the researchers say explains some of the increased risk. And finally, actors have started kissing again on French film sets. The announcement was made by the French culture minister, Franck Riester, who said kissing would only be allowed if both actors tested negative for the virus. Shooting in Europe's biggest film industry was restarted earlier this month, although many romantic scenes were put on hold. And that's the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. Tune in to HPR One Saturday night for Hawaii Public Radio Presents Blue Note Virtually Live, performances from the Blue Note Hawaii stage. 
This week, it's Jake Shimabukuro, the local ukulele artist who's now recognized around the world for his talents. Plus, we'll hear about Jake's journey and current projects in a backstage interview. That's Saturday at 6 p.m. Tune in to HPR1 or listen on your smart speaker. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Habitat for Humanity, dedicated to the idea that everyone should have a decent place to live and committed to bringing people together to build homes. HonoluluHabitat.org. It's the Aloha Friday Conversation, arts, culture, and ideas in Hawaii. I'm Noe Tanigawa. We're talking with Loretta Sheehan, who joined the Honolulu Police Commission in 2016. She became chair in 2018. She stepped off the board just last month. During her tenure, she impressed for tougher questions during the investigation of former police chief Louis K. Aloha, and she was the only dissenting vote on his $250,000 retirement package in 2017. I asked Ms. Sheehan what the takeaways from the K. Aloha case might be for Honolulu citizens. One is that the unthinkable can and does happen, and so we have to be aware of that. Are there policies still in place that facilitated this situation in our police department that need to be looked at if we're looking at reform? Here's the thing. Criminal behavior is going to happen. Crime is going to happen. There are going to be dishonest souls in our state, in our government, and in our police department. So we can have all the respect and aloha for a person or a department and still recognize that bad things happen and that oversight is necessary. Right now, the Honolulu Police Commission, they have very, very limited authority. And in terms of actually keeping an eye on the department or keeping being aware of criminal activity, they don't have that authority. They're allowed to hire and fire the chief of police and discipline the chief of police. And they're allowed to review the rules and regulations of the police department. And that's pretty much it. That's it. So we rely upon the federal authorities to investigate like they did with the KLOHs, and it worked. That's great. However, we may want to look at whether our oversight of the department is sufficient. I'm just wondering what kind of oversight could have provided a window onto what was going on earlier in this case. And this is the outside looking in, because I wasn't in the department at the time. I wasn't a police officer. But my understanding is that there was a culture of extreme loyalty to the chief, which was required by the chief, and which is kind of rampant in police departments. It's a paramilitary organization where you are required to say, yes, sir, to your supervisor. And so loyalty is frequently a very honored cultural value in police departments. That's great. It makes police departments work efficiently. And that's bad because if you're extremely loyal, then you're going to overlook things that are suspicious and you're going to turn away when you see things you'd rather not see, and you're going to do things because the chief tells you to do them. So the first thing is there has to be a change in culture. And the culture has to be not so much loyalty to the chief or to your supervisor or to your division or your department or to the force. It has to be to a greater purpose. That's the first thing is the culture. And I think, you know, honestly, Sue Ballard is very good about that, about reinforcing the culture of a higher purpose. I, I, I really do. The second thing is when officers do see something or do suspect something, they have to have a safe place to report it. Certainly the police commission was not that place in the past, and maybe it should remain with the federal authorities, that if they suspect something, they could report it to the FBI or to their professional standards office, internal affairs. But mostly the culture and the self-definition of a police officer has to be one that requires loyalty to the rule of law and not to a person. I think demilitarize the police is another one of the cries I hear out there. Yeah, you know, and you know, again, that's a place where I think we've done well. I, we had a huge protest up in Kahuku and it was handled effectively. It was handled nonviolently. It was handled with officers on bicycles, for goodness sake. (laughs) Yes, I think there's a lot that mainland police departments could learn from the Honolulu Police Department. On the other hand, I don't know what it's like over there. The videos we saw of the protests in Washington, D.C., I mean, they were armed to the teeth. And the unthinkable can happen here. 
I mean, I think a crime rate could grow, go up for sure. I mean, I think there's going to be a wave of burglaries and purse snatchings and home invasions. And I mean, there is, there's going to be economic desperation. And so, but I don't necessarily see armed riots, you know, or, or looting. I mean, I don't really see it, but who knows? I don't know how bad it's going to get. I do not know. If there's anything you feel maybe you left undone on the commission, what would that be? You know, I think I did all I could do. There comes a certain point where there's a stylistic change. There's a desire for, for a different culture. Um, I think I'm extremely comfortable with opening my mouth and saying what I think. <laughs> and other people prefer a more modified approach. Is there more to be done? Absolutely. What would be the first things? What I saw as key to the Honolulu Police Commission was making it into a place where the public could come and have a forum. It was a place where citizens could interface with the chief of police and be heard. And that's hugely important. And that's a source of frustration in many cities. People don't get so angry when you get to have your three minutes with the chief of police and say, this is what's going on. And so I thought it was really, it was very important as a forum for people. I don't know if it's going to continue to be that. We'll see. We'll see. I'm very encouraged by the two new commissioners who were selected. Mike Broderick and, and Zetian are extremely bright they both have experience in law and in the court system, and Doug Chin is a former prosecutor, so they were very good picks. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what else I could have done. But. You know, but the whole thing is, I just don't see the level of transparency that would allow the commission to do its work of oversight to the level that, that you would expect as a citizen, really. One thing I would have liked to have seen, avenues for police reform, we may want to start with transparency of the police department policies. When Joe's citizen goes online, he or she can only see a redacted version of many of the department's policies, in particular the use of force policy. Citizens, I believe, should have complete access to the policies of the police department. There's absolutely no reason to redact. You know, I've heard the excuse that we can't release the full use of force policy because then the bad guys will know what we're going to do. But I think that's absolutely absurd. It doesn't make sense to me. If your policies are sound and justifiable, then you should release them. Policies are different than operational information, which of course must remain confidential, of course. But policies, those should be open to the public, and I do not understand why they're confidential. Our state legislators may want to consider whether internal police disciplinary matters to include charging, administrative review board hearings, decisions, grievances, and the outcomes of such grievances should continue to be conducted in secret. Right now, unless an officer is publicly charged with a criminal offense by the Office of the Prosecuting Attorney or by the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, or an officer's publicly sued, nobody gets to find out about it. It's all top secret information. I think that the legislature should look at that, take a good hard look at that. The Charter Commission may want to reconsider the role of the Police Commission. They may want to expand the powers of the commission to do more than simply hire and fire the chief and review the rules. They may want to allow the police commission to actually look under the hood and examine what is actually going on in the police department. Those are some ideas that, you know, moving forward that we might want to look at. Because just because things are seem to be working really well at the moment, again, Chief Keloha teaches us that the unthinkable can happen and that citizen oversight is always necessary. Loretta Sheehan stepped down from the police commission last month. She's currently in private practice here in Honolulu. You said you'd stay. Why did you go? So much around has changed. So much you need to know. Music by Ron Artiste the Second called To Dad. <laughs> and what a dad you had. Fond regards to all the dads showing us why you got a day for your own this coming Sunday. Aloha Friday. So glad to have your company and so happy to introduce you now to Roberta Uno. 
She's Director of Arts in a Changing America at the California Institute of the Arts. Before that, she was at the Ford Foundation for 13 years. Uno was born in Hawaii and continues to be an ally for Hawaii artists and cultural practitioners. She says the frontier for art now is community benefit and participating in the changes American communities are going through. Demographers have told us that by the year 2042, there will be no ethnic majority in the U.S. So Hawaii is already living in the future. It actually always was because Hawaii is the only state that never had a white majority. And the entire country, as I said, by 2042 will be in aggregate people of color. What will that mean to the culture of this country? Right. And that shift really marks the kind of end of America as a country that was constructed to be a white country through slavery, through genocide and wars with Native American people, through the internment camps, through exclusionary immigration laws. And so, you know, we really see that this post-1965 Immigration Act and the Civil Rights Movement engendered the possibility that we could actually become a pluralistic democracy. You know, I think back to my own grandfather coming to the United States. He changed his name to George after George Washington. He was a Christian convert in Japan, came here for religious freedom, but then found out that he could not own land, that he could not intermarry with Caucasians had he wanted to, that he could not become a citizen, therefore could not vote to change any of those laws, right? And so the browning of America is happening because of changes in those laws. You're kind of saying that immigrants have fought to make the country live up to the ideals that are written Ab in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Absolutely. But I think not just immigrants, Native Americans, Black Americans, we become the litmus test for the ideals of democracy. How have artists been involved in this enfolding understanding about who we are? Well, I think we have to back up a little bit first, Noe, and, and look at our arts field, okay? Our arts field is as challenged as any other sector in the United States in terms of racial inequity and cultural inequity. The biggest example would be the lack of equitable funding in the arts field. There was a landmark study by the National Committee for Responsive Philanthropy that documented the fact that of all the arts funding in the United States, well over 50% goes to organizations with budgets of $5 million or more. They are only 2% of the entire art sector. Meanwhile, organizations with explicit missions to serve diverse communities receive less than 10% of arts funding. That bumps up against this demographic shift. We need to propose solutions. We need to identify and create best practice. That's what artists do. That's what we can do. I think we also need to look oftentimes beyond our art sector for solutions. And so, for example, community benefits, right? That idea really came out of the community development field, where in Detroit, that's a city that has endured so much with bankruptcy, with public utilities being shut down, of water being cut off. I mean, basic human utilities. Yet Detroiters are some of the most creative, resourceful, generous, innovative arts organizers that we've met. In Detroit, people in the arts looked across to the community development sector and saw and were part of efforts for community benefits agreements that would benefit the community, such as environmental impact, affordable housing, job creation, and economic development. This kind of work is happening in community development. Why don't we, as artists, look at the issue of community benefits? Are we going to just recover the arts field and the status quo of inequality as we knew it? I think people are in the streets now People are lifting their voices because they don't want to recover just the status quo. People have had enough of the way things were and are really raising the possibilities of what can be. 
in closing, can you, can you bring this home for Hawaii, the community that you actually do know so well over so many years? Do you see particular challenges or opportunities with the Hawaii art community? In Hawaii, I think looking to the strengths, what makes Hawaii unique and special and really gives it leadership in the world. When you look at, for example, the revitalization of Olelo Hawaii, that is more than just the significance, which is a huge significance of revitalizing an indigenous language when so many languages are dying. It's the preservation of traditional knowledge and science. It's the continuation of intergenerational learning. It's the stewardship of the land, the idea of sustainability. When you look at the fact that so much of that, navigation, hula, agriculture, malama aina, so much of that has been self-sustaining. Those types of art forms that show interconnectedness, that show a relationship to the natural world, to community and ancestral wisdom, that show relationship to healing, that is needed now more than ever. And I think that is what makes Hawaii a very special place that has something to offer and to build upon and to learn from. Roberta Uno is an active theater director and director of Arts in a Changing America. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from PAR Hawaii, proud to support Hawaii Nature Center for 30 years and their nature adventure camps on Oahu and Maui. On now, registration at hawaiinaturecenter.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Martin Shaw, author of Courting the Wild Twin. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about seeking the exiled wild twin located deep inside and outside us. Sunday morning at 11. It's the Aloha Friday Conversation, and now an artist you're getting to know. Solomon Enos's paintings are in hotels, offices, and private collections all over town. And you might remember we ran into him at Powwow this past February. He did complete that inspiring painting on the flats at Pu'unui. A community artist, Solomon has done countless projects with youth and neighborhood groups. His ongoing series, Polyfantastica, is a 40,000-year epic set in Oceania. I caught up with Solomon in his studio in Uwanu to find out how he's looking at our mid-COVID experience. What we have is a gigantic puzzle, and everybody has pieces of that puzzle. If we put it all together, I think what we'll find is a, is a world that is exponentially more harmonious than the one that we're currently in. But one of the challenges of putting a puzzle together is if you lose the cover, you know, if you lose the box cover that tells you what we're trying to build, it's hard to put a puzzle together because we don't have a single unified image. And we're struggling to put this puzzle together. And so one of the role of, of an artist can be to work with other artists to try to create visions collectively that involve as many stakeholders as possible, visualizing collectively, what is it that we want? What do we want? I think we're moving beyond how we can get it if we want it, but what is it that we want? So what does a harmonious world look like where everybody gets enough respect, everybody gets enough food, everybody gets enough love, those are the kinds of things that were almost unimaginable even last year. <laughs> so 20, 2020 has been such an amazing, powerful, horrible, potentially joyful year so far. And it's, um, there's, a, there's, there's so many critical masses that are coming together. And I think trying to harness it all and trying to get it all onto one page is something, as an artist, we can help. 
you've done so many different kinds of community projects. I mean, you have worked with people. You know yeah. the give and take of it. What are the ways that artists can work with the community? Well, I like to think about one of the projects that I've done in the past. And these, these were uh, simple exercises that I would do with, uh, you know, if it was a, a, a classroom or a, a community organization, is I would take a big image and then I would cut it up into small pieces and then I would have everybody color in their own little piece. And at the end of the event, I would take all the pieces that they colored and I would reassemble the big picture. And then when I would show everybody the big picture, they would say, oh my God, here's the big picture. And when they zoom in, they'll say, oh, here I am. And here's my contribution to that big picture. And that was like this automatic, <laughs> an automatic epiphany. But before we could do that, I had to come up with the macro image. And so I think as artists, you know, we can help to translate individual ideas and to amalgamate them. One of the things I would love to be able to do with this same kind of a concept is I want to see a real-time map of hope. Hawaii is a perfect example because mm -hmm. we're, we're like a sandbox. We can experiment. We can come up with these different ideas, but we're a finite amount of space, you know, and we're surrounded by ocean. And so we're like a perfect little, you know, laboratory. I want to be able to create virtual maps that allow people to understand what the status of our communities are, where the problems are, where they can help, what is the status of our forests, what is our status of our waterways. But to have this map be beautiful and interesting and dynamic, I almost like the idea of data visualization being the highest form of art. What's happening now, because our economy has been disrupted, you know, another big area that I, that I think we can expand into that has a lot of win-win-win potential is in Hawaii, we can double down and delve right down into our traditional stories, our mo'olelo. When I, when I did the Hiyaka Ikopolio Pele epic with Puakea Nogomeyer folks, there was all this crazy Lord of the Rings slash Game of Thrones. Slash, I mean, there was just all these really cool tropes and magic and monsters. And, you know, there was like entire underground worlds of insect people. And I was like, what? This is in Hiyaka? Our ancestors were talking about underground worlds of insect people? I mean, this is like, you know, Harry Potter kind of stuff. And I, and I, I was so blown away by this. And this is something that Pukia brought up, which is, I, you know, was really important. And I think it has a lot of relevancy for what's going on right now, is that if there were two different pools of water, one pool of water is full of all the hurt, right? All the, and, and we need to understand that pool of water. Yeah, like what happened in Hawaii, how we, you know, how our people were decimated both spiritually and physically through disease, you know, all of that, that pool of water needs to be protected because we need to understand what happened. But then there's another pool of water, right? And this other pool of water are the hundreds of years of wonder and mystery and stories of what happened pre-contact. And pre-contact, you know, you know, we had, we had wars and we did stupid things, but boy, there was a lot of beautiful wonder and magic. Those both pools of water are important. Which one are we going to drink from? <laughs> right? We, we need to be what we want to be. Solomon, I look at the characters you create, and from the way they look, you're not sure what powers they have. They look powerful. Mm -hmm. They look persuasive. They look like they can breathe mm -hmm. underwater. They look like they can fly, some of them. Definitely, I think you're, you've keyed in on the right thing, which is to make it feel, make these alternative histories feel like they're alive and they're as real as, as we are. I think I'm beginning to understand the power of storytelling. And it gets back to what we we're talking about earlier of using stories to heal using stories to define what we want, yeah? We have a lot of stories that have told us what we don't want, but we need as many stories that tell us about what we do want. You know, there's the story about how it all fell apart. I'm like, okay, great. How many more of those stories do we need? There's a thousand different stories of dystopia. We need a thousand and one stories of potential utopias, potential visions of what we do want, which, which circles right back to what we were talking about in the beginning. Oh, Solomon Enos gave us a custom design for HPR's latest membership t-shirt. He posts work daily on Instagram. Check his new Kamapua'a animation project. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programs. Mahalo to contributors Ekahi Health, 
Ulupono Initiative, and Impact Hub Honolulu co-working. I'm Ira Plato. This week on Science Friday, big companies are pushing the pause button on sales of facial recognition to police and calling for laws to deal with bias and racial inequity in AI. But some say we should be thinking bigger. The goal is not simply better tools, but to actually pose these larger questions about whether we want these at all. On the next Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Starting this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a mission to create transformative experiences through art and committed to standing with the community during this time. Updates on reopening at honolulumuseum.org. listening to Kamakakehau Fernandez, African-American, adopted and raised in Olelo, Hawaii on Maui. We'll catch up with him real soon. But first, a spin through our theater scene. We've got theaters and acting groups all across the islands, and summer productions are normally a huge part of life for a lot of families. This year, it's a little different. For example, at Honolulu's historic Hawaii Theater, education programs are off, and there hasn't been a performance since February. They're looking at $100,000 a month in electricity, insurance, and other expenses with almost zero revenue. Greg Dunn, president and CEO of Hawaii Theater Center, says they got PPP funding. That lasted six weeks, but the staff of 49 is now down to four. They have developed online content to stay in touch with audience, and they have a lot more ideas, but there is one problem. As we're all looking to how to make it work, the one component that's missing is the funding to get it off the ground. Uh, the Community Foundation has been very clear with us that they are not funding the arts right now. The things we've done initially have all been through the generosity and the talents of the crew members that we've worked with. They've all come together and they volunteered their time and their talent to build something really spectacular with the streaming concert series that we've started. But they didn't get paid. The concerts we've put out have been on a donation basis, where each of the concerts would bring in anywhere from $1,000 to $2,000 a piece. But the production costs is about $15,000, so there's a significant gap. So, Greg, I mean, movie theaters are going to be opening. Why wouldn't Hawaii Theater open? Well, according to the COVID-19 task force, they considered the historic Hawaii Theater as a large concert and performing arts venue and not a movie theater. So consequently, they had no plans to allow us to reopen at this time, period. Here's the thing is we can talk about the date when they can open, but then there's an economic reality. If we use the entire auditorium and then space people out with one empty row and six feet in between the couples and foursomes from one family, we've done the modeling and it brings our capacity down to around 450. How do you make a performance viable under a model that assumed that you would be able to have a thousand or fourteen hundred people. That is the question. Greg Don emphasizes Hawaii Theater is an independent nonprofit, no government funds for operations, and they've just partnered with the Hawaii Symphony for future projects. Now, movie theaters, bars, and other venues on Oahu are reopening today. In Chinatown, check the sidewalk bistro dining. <laughs> Go fet. Social distancing still required, of course. What's happening in the movie theaters? Well, Consolidated says they're considering reopening in July to coincide with some new releases. Right now, they're figuring out safety protocols and training their teams. At Manoa Valley Theater, Executive Director Kip Wilburn says they're rolling with MT MVT Live interviews on Fridays at 4 on Facebook. It's time to catch up with theater friends and meet new ones. MVT is planning their season opener for September 3rd. It's the award-winning play, Desperate measures. <laughs> On Hawaii Island, up Waimea, the handsome Kahilu Theater is looking at changes. Executive Director Deb Goodwin will be leaving at the end of June. A longtime Waimea resident, Goodwin was instrumental in writing the Kahilu after it went dark to regroup in 2012. Goodwin says back then, their amazing community managed to pitch in and retire a $200,000 plus debt in one night at Merriman's. Support for the Kahilo is still strong. We were optimistically thinking we could do something in the fall. We've looked at some outdoor venues that are around. I wanted it to be in front of the theater, do a little drive-up concert, like a movie theater, drive-in movie, but our weather here 
We've had a lot of horizontal rain lately, so probably going down to a drier climate. Um, you know, talk story with artists, some digital, you know, like a lot of organizations are doing. But again, just really taking this time to put our house in order, make sure our building is the best she can be, and just really hope. I mean, because everyone wants to come back in. I mean, everybody would much rather be in that theater than watching anything on a screen. Deb Goodwin is executive director at Waimea's Kahilu Theater until the end of June. She's not leaving town. She's simply moving to another project. I looked for my heart, it's Perdido. I lost it way down in Torito. While chancing a dance fiesta. Valero. You're listening to the much-loved and missed Azure McCall. She's been entertaining abroad. We're taking a look at theaters now, and back in Honolulu, Venerable Diamond Head Theater saw its staff go from 17 to 2 to now 7 as they begin to climb back. Executive Director Dina Dre says they're hoping to run a summer program maybe late July and may do an outdoor event on their lovely campus in October. Downtown at Kumukahua, Donna Blanchard, the managing director, says they got PPP and various CARES Act funding. They're hunkering down there. This is their 50th anniversary season, just brimming with new plays commissioned years ago for this event. They had planned to offer the full season free of charge, but are now wondering how to stage it at all. The issue that we run into is sound, and specifically for us, Kumukuhua is an intimate theater. You can hear the actors breathe. You know, you hear a sigh on our stage. Our playwrights write for that intimate experience. We want to maintain that experience somehow. So that's why we've been exploring something on the order of like a silent disco. We've figured out that we can do that via a, an FM signal. You can bring your own transistor radio and your own earphones and your own lawn chair. So you're not sharing surfaces with anyone. And then the actors would all have lavalier microphones attached to them. So you're going to hear a sigh or a gasp in that same intimate way. If we can utilize that technology, that makes it possible to use something like the shell, a much bigger space. Wow, that, that's a terrific uh, possibility there. And your yard is fantastic. It's a wonderful space. So what would be the first production? We're actually doing something a little fun next weekend with the folks you meet at Long's, Lee Cataluna's show. We're doing a competition among actors who have played some of the most beloved roles in the show. And it's actually a mini fundraiser for the theater as well. We are hoping that we're going to be able to open the conversion of Ka'ahumanu in an outdoor space somewhere on July 16th using this FM signal. It's funny how things change every week around here, but we're looking at the cost of the transistor radios because not everyone has one of those. I have my little HPR wind up. We're looking at that and we're also looking at how there's one piece of this puzzle that I know a lot of people aren't talking about and maybe not recognizing, but I, I've heard that there are some organizations that are opening their doors, but they're not opening their bathrooms. It's a different scenario for germs. So we're trying to figure out that piece of the puzzle as well. We surveyed our audiences a couple of weeks ago, and about a third of them are uncomfortable with viewing a show in a public space at all, even if it's outside. And about 20% of them answered, I don't know. And it's completely understandable that none of us really know how comfortable we're going to be in a scenario until it's time to walk out the door and you feel that burning in your gut that says, oh, maybe I'm not comfortable with this. We're probably going to go into the hole this year, and we're willing to do that as long as the hole doesn't get too deep. Mm-hmm. Check Instagram for Kumukahua's new plans for folks you meet at Long's. Lee Cataluna's killer send-up of us and what we do. <laughs> Kumu just announced a new partnership, too, the Reset Theater Coalition to inspire a reset in American culture. Now, one last note about the actors group, TAG, a small, spunky theater headquartered at Dole Cannery. They've done the modeling for social distancing, and they're looking at audiences of 15 to 20 when they reopen. They're shooting for August 14th with Kimberly Akimbo, about a 16-year-old with an aging disease. TAG has consistently offered alternative theater experiences, including important African-American plays. Now, we featured 
local African-American musicians this hour of the Aloha Friday Conversation. And today, June 19th, is one to remember in African-American history. It's called Juneteenth, honoring the day in 1865 when the Union Army reached Texas, bringing news that slavery was over. This was two years after the Emancipation Proclamation and three months after the Civil War ended. Now, Hawaii is jumping on board with observing Juneteenth Day. Uh, this week, the Honolulu City Council and Mayor Caldwell passed a resolution recognizing Juneteenth as an annual day of honor and reflection. And just this morning, Governor Ige also recognized Juneteenth in Hawaii. Honolulu Hale will glow yellow and black tonight through Sunday. Somewhere out there on my road, I got lost out in a storm. Somewhere out there on my own in the cold. Couldn't run, couldn't run, couldn't run from what I've done. A good night, good night, good night, it was a broken one. I got lost and I stole. I got lost. We're closing with this piece by Thunderstorm Artis, who represented Hawaii on The Voice this past spring. Shout out to the Artis Ohana of Haleiwa. They had a base at Ron Artis' art gallery. Eleven children there, many of them musical. We played Ron Thunderstorm's brother earlier. Thunderstorm has been touring with his music the past six years and got married in April. He had a terrific ride on The Voice. <laughs> now, a quick note, one last one. Bishop Museum is reopening for members today and to the general public next week. We know it's a push. Congratulations and much aloha. All right, that is about it for this Aloha Friday. Thanks so much for your company. We absolutely love to hear from you. You can call our talkback line and leave us your comments. That's 808-792-8217. Visit the conversation page on the HPR web website to listen back to our shows. Thank you, Lillian Tsang, Harrison Patino, Jason Ubai. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Happy Aloha Friday. Let's take care of each other and meet on Monday for the conversation. Carry on, forgive me.